0: On the 25th of February 2019, the entire Soli series is uploaded online. A few days later, I receive the first messages. Many write to me that they have known of similar stories in the past, that they have never seen old friends again, and that they have heard from distant acquaintances about children for whom it didn't end well. Strange things happen in those days, Many sannyazins get in touch. And while I'm browsing the shelves of the used bookstore near my house, I suddenly recognise a title. The hard copy of a 1993 volume printed by one of Osho's publishing houses in New Delhi. It's the biography of Osho's adoring English governess. I had often quoted from that book in Wild Wild Sheila. I reach out for it quickly, as if somebody could steal it from me, but nobody around me cares about that book. Inside, there's a half erased 2009 receipt from an osteria, an inn in Chiavari. It seems ridiculous, but the journey around the world made by that book, almost impossible to find, which ended up right there by my house, seems exactly like one of those things Osho could have lectured about for two hours. The day before the last recording of the podcast, a doubt about pronunciation seizes me. And in looking for a name, I find an online list. Medina, where are we now? A sort of almanac with all the names of the Sanyazins, adults and children who have passed through the suffer commune we have talked about so much. Next to the names and photographs, there are updates on where they are now, what they do. What they died of, telephone numbers, email addresses. It looks like a prank. How could I not find it before? Only now the work is finished. I browse it quickly. There are no Venu, Camila, or Chandra. Yes, I know, we have never spoken about her. Yet. To get back to the connections Osho would so enjoy, one week before the release of Soli, while I'm looking for something. Entirely different, I find out about the existence of a documentary made by a Dutch director in 2004. It's called Child of the Commune. The director, Maruscha Perizonius, goes back to the places in which she grew up, now wholly deserted, and interviews her mother, the one who decided she should live there, in Osho's communes. Just like when you're ashamed to pick up something precious you found by chance, and just like Tim Guest had done with his newspaper, I kept that information in my mind for exactly one month, before I decided to press play. The next morning, I was writing to Marusha. This is Roberta Lippi. I write for TV, radio and the web. You are listening to Soli, a journey into the memories of children who grew up in Osho's communes between the beginning of the 70s and the first half of the 80s. We have listened to many voices, and today it's time to give space to somebody who had already tried to be heard several years ago. It's Marusha Perizonius, renamed by Osho at the age of six, Ma Prem Chandra, Love Moon Marusha was born in 1972 in Leiden, a town between the Hague and Amsterdam. She grew up in a hippie family, and her parents divorced when she was very young. In 1978, her mother becomes interested in the teachings of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, and she decides to take her daughter on holiday to Pune. And so, like for many other children, Chandra's story begins.
1: My parents, first of all, my parents were divorced and it was only my mother who was interested. My parents both were hippies from the beginning, so actually before everybody became a hippie. And uh, that was because they were interested in philosophy and spiritualism and all the things that were missing from society in the 50s. My mother continued that after she heard stories from friends who had been to Pune and who had met Bagwan, I think for my mother, she was seeking some kind of fulfillment um, that she couldn't find in the society in the 80s, in the Netherlands, in Western Europe. What she wanted just wasn't there. People who were thinking about themselves, about the reason they were here, about what they were supposed to do here. And so she found that and she met a whole bunch of people who were looking for the same thing. I was six years old. My mother had become a sannyasin. She was allowed to meet Bhagwan and wasn't planning on becoming a follower, but she left it up to him whether he would make her a follower or not. And everybody thought, well, obviously he's going to. And she said, well, let's see. And so he, he made her and Sannyasin a follower. And um, as I was six years old, I wanted nothing more than to be the same as everybody there um, in the ashram in Puna, to have an exciting new name and, uh, and be the same as my mother. And she said, well, if you really want to, we can make an appointment. So we did. When it was my turn, I stepped up to Bhagwan and I sat down in front of him as I was supposed to. I was told to close my eyes. He put a necklace around my neck with his portrait. And he told me that my new name was Ma Prem And I was excited about that. And he asked me, do you have anything to say? Well, I said, I told him my address. And I said, you know, if you want to come for a cup of tea. Everybody had to laugh because as my mother later explained, of course, anybody would want to have Bhagwan over for tea. I didn't really know what to think of him. I was told when I asked about it, that he was a special man who could sort of see through you and that he was a person who could, who knew you better than you knew yourself. So to me, I, I thought of him like, a, very famous important person like santa claus or something and that i was privileged to be visiting him and meeting him
0: when she returns from her visit to Pune, marusha has become chandra but what seems like a strange indian holiday will slowly change her whole life
1: When we were in Pune, we stayed in a hotel outside of the ashram. We did things outside of the ashram a lot. We visited temples and we did day trips, but gradually over the six weeks, we stayed in the ashram more and more. I don't remember much about what we did. I think my mother did some meditations. I don't remember there being a kindergarten or anything for children, but I think It was really exciting for me to be in a country like India, where you had to be careful when you were eating a banana or when you went to the market, you got yogurt in a little plastic bag. I think I really liked it. And when we returned to the Netherlands, we sort of became real sannyasins also in our way of life. Of course, we had had our malas given, the, the necklaces that Bhagwan gave to everybody. And we had a new name. Also, we had red clothes. But when we got home, we continued our normal life. I went to school, etc. And gradually, our clothes became more and more red or purple or pink, just as we were supposed to. Our life changed in the way that over the years, more and more people that we met and that we were friends with were also Sanyasins.
0: From that moment on, Marusha's life takes a turn. And despite all of her crying and opposition, her normal life is replaced by the Sanyasin life. There are the first contacts with the European communes,
1: the moving, the trips, the separations. We started to go to the Sanyasin Center in our city more and more regularly and uh, visited the commune in Amsterdam. When I was uh, 11 and 12, we visited Rajnishpuram, or the ranch, twice. The first time it was just for two weeks. The second time, my mother wanted to do a course there and we stayed for over two months.
0: In Rajnishpuram. During that second visit, mother and daughter are separated. They both live in the A-frames, the wooden houses shaped like an A that the Sanyazins who had come to Oregon had built together, along with the rest of the settlement, thanks to their sweat and the many, countless hours of work dedicated to the making of their promised land. A story of a separation of kilometers inside the same commune and which we already know from the accounts of Tim Guest and Dickon and Kent. An immense city in the desert, which seemed to the children enormous and impressive, as Venu told us.
1: The first time we visited Rashnishpuram, we had to get used to the amount of people there. It was really enormous. It was like a city. It was incredible what they had there, how they had built it. But it was also very strange because normally we were a small group and there was always the outside world and now there was no outside world. And when we went there the second time and we stayed there for two months, my mother and I didn't live together in the same place. I lived in an A-frame somewhere and um, she also lived somewhere. And I worked. And the scary thing was that the second time... Sanyasins who were in charge had guns. Well, not all Sanyasins, but a lot of them had guns. They said it was for our protection. But I wasn't used to, in my society, to see people with such big guns. And so there was um, a sense of danger. And even though I was 11, 12, I picked that up. I thought later, you know, reflecting that, The atmosphere there was tense. Well, if you've seen Wild Wild Country or if you've read a book about it, it's true that there was a lot of tension back then.
0: Those were the same weapons that had so impressed Venu. One of those weapons, Marusha says, was aimed at her to make her go to one of Osha's drive-bys, the long processions which the guru made every afternoon with a Rolls-Royce while an endless crowd of followers waited for him, clapping and dancing along the road. Returning from America, Marusha's mother decides to abandon her home. She wants to move into the Amsterdam commune permanently. In her documentary, Marusha remembers the despair related to that news. Given that you can only bring one suitcase in the commune, They both have to give away or sell almost everything. Marusha remembers what she wrote in her diary, her immense sadness in having to abandon her toys, her home and the city where she was born. She wrote, It's like getting rid of my whole life. She reminds her mother of when she literally clung to the doorpost to try not to leave. I will quote very little from the documentary because it's hard to put into words the continuous exchange of silent looks between mother and daughter in the moment in which the first doesn't remember or has erased a memory and the second one has to deal with that denial. Marusha, Chandra, is then forced to follow her mother but she still doesn't know that another surprise awaits her in Amsterdam
1: my mother decided that it was a good idea for us to move to the big commune in Amsterdam. So we did. After we moved to the commune in Amsterdam from our house, we stayed there, just, you know, we spent the first days there, and it became clear that I was going to be sent to Medina in England. I was going there without any parent. Somebody was traveling with us, there were some other children going there too. And the idea was that the Sanya's kids could follow lessons there and learn also to work and be together without the adults being around them all the time so that they could develop independently.
0: And we're back to Medina, the English school Camila hated. The setting for Venus forced meditations, the nightmare of Tim Guest, who at the time was known as Yogesh the famous Rajneesh school. But was it truly a school? I asked Marusha to describe an average day.
1: In reality, I think I had one or two lessons a week. I remember they told me, do you want to take math? And I thought, no, I don't. (laughs) So I didn't. Nobody was pressuring me to take lessons of any kind. But it was clear that I was supposed to work. And the schedule in Almost all the communes, I think, was work 12 hours a day. So we would start at 7.30 in the morning and work until 7.30 in the evening. They told me I had to work at the cleaners. So I started my days with cleaning bathrooms and toilets. Uh, after a while, I complained about this because I really didn't, didn't enjoy it. Most of the people didn't enjoy that and you had to have a good reason for it if you wanted to change to another temple, as we called it. And I actually wanted to go to the kitchen. So I gave them the reason that I had experience and I had because I had worked in the kitchen in America and also in Amsterdam and I really enjoyed that. Until today I still make too much whenever I cook and because I had to work with such big amounts back then. So uh, they told me I could change to the kitchens and uh, work there every day, but they had a different schedule. They started earlier to make breakfast for about 200 people, adults and children. So I often started at 5:30 in the morning and and worked until 5:30 in the evening. But while I was there, which was three and a half months, the movement started to collapse. Sheila left Bhagwan, there was a lot of doubt whether we had to wear wear red clothes or not, whether we had to wear malas or not. And people started to leave, which meant that there weren't enough people in the kitchen to to do all the work. So I often worked from 5.30 in the morning until 7.30 in the evening, or sometimes even 10.30 in the evening. And I was exhausted. The good thing was that I could see the positive side of it, but we were always obligated to see the positive side of everything. But still I thought, well, whatever happens, we still have to eat. So I felt I was doing something that was useful and something that people enjoyed. But I couldn't say that Medina was a school. I think the fact that we weren't supposed to be Sending so many letters. I was always trying to send letters to Amsterdam, to my father, to my friends in the Netherlands. I think the fact that we weren't supposed to send letters makes clear that they had something going on there that was not healthy for children. Also, my mother and I phoned. She phoned me from the Amsterdam commune, for example, and the phones were in the offices. And I remember that people would correct me immediately if I started to speak Dutch with my own mother. I was supposed to speak in English because we were an international commune, but maybe there was another reason. Maybe they wanted to listen in and be able to understand it. That's difficult for me to prove, but it did feel that way.
0: Imagine how alienating it must have been in a relationship built before you even know how to speak. That of a mother and a daughter to have to communicate in a language which is not your own. Today, we know that all conversations had by Sanyazins were intercepted by the movement. Marusha isn't wrong. Even as a child, she clearly understood something wasn't right. Just like Camila who received the facts that would bring her home and so decided to prepare her little show in front of Sheila to get her own personal path to freedom. But Sheila too will soon flee, as Marusha reminds us. Bhagwan's most faithful follower, the one who helped him build his great project, will turn her back on him and flee to the other side of the world, where she will say he's a manipulator. In that time... So confusing for all the Sanyasin communes, Marusha receives a letter in Dutch from her father. In that letter he tries to make her understand that it's sheer madness for the school to make her work every day and that even though she thinks she likes it, she needs to learn how to think critically about everybody, Bhagwan included. He sends her a magazine asking her to be careful when opening it. It hides several newspaper cuttings. Chandra tells her mother she no longer wants to live in Medina. However, during her time at the school, she gets used to receiving her first sexual proposals from adults. A teacher tells her, when you are as tall as this dresser, we could sleep together. It happens to all the teenagers her age inside the commune, and seeing adults having sex with each other and with adolescents is the norm. Because of this, it's not surprising that, when she's back in the Amsterdam commune with her mother, she keeps finding that kind of relationship normal.
1: It is, of course, a difficult subject. In the commune, there was a sort of free sex philosophy, meaning... Nobody had relationships, or at least there weren't so many relationships of people who stayed together for a long time or were married or anything like that. To me and to other girls that I knew back then, it seemed very much that as we were 13, 14, 15, 16, that anybody could ask you to sleep with them. Of course, You were a young girl growing up. We were young girls growing up, and we were interested in boys of our age. We were interested in getting compliments from people. We were insecure about how we looked, just like any other girl all over the world. And I think adult men took advantage of that. They gave us compliments also through the message box, They would send a message to me. It would be behind the sea of my name. I would pick up the message and feel very flattered that some guy thought I was beautiful. But uh, later on, he would try to get me into his bed. And um, almost all the girls had those experiences with older men. And nobody seemed to mind or nobody, nobody thought it was a bad thing because sex was connected to tantra which was connected to spirituality so having sex for them was a way to get a higher had to raise your consciousness and so growing up with so much freedom is something that they saw as very good for us but of course we were just discovering who we were and i think they should have paid a lot more attention and warned the girls that they shouldn't do anything until they were ready, like maybe at the age of 18.
0: Like a cold shower, seeing her 13-year-old daughter in bed with a man seems to awaken Marusha's mother from her sleep. However, at the same time, Marusha has come to feel like Chandra, And she can't stand the idea of once again being torn away from something she belongs to and starting
1: anew. After my mother discovered that I was in bed with older guys, she didn't want that for me and she told me uh, we are going to leave the commune and, and everything is falling apart, but this is not good for us to be here. We're going to find a house somewhere. I was very angry with her as any teenager at that point would probably be, because I had just settled into the commune. We had left our lives behind and started a new life. And I had committed to that. I was doing everything I was supposed to, from working to having free sex and uh, living the commune life. So I protested, but she did get a house and she just put me in a car. We took some stuff because we had no things left. We needed, for example, a mattress. I think we took a mattress and a duvet and pillows. And um, we started a new life in our apartment somewhere in Amsterdam.
0: Marusha's documentary is a sucker punch because in response to her direct questions asked to those adults who should have protected her, that is her mother and the supervisor of the Amsterdam commune, responsibility is denied, and they actually throw the accusations back in her face, claiming it was young Chandra who did not ask for help. I asked Marusha how she related to this unbearable divergence in views, if we want to call it that.
1: Actually, when I was making the film, I was two people. On one side I was a director, and on the other side I was the girl that all those things... Happened to. So when in my film people shifted the responsibility that, as I think, they should have taken when I was young, they shifted the responsibility to me and they said, Well, did you do anything with it? Did you talk to anybody? Did you solve this problem? And for me as a person, that was, of course, painful because I think they should have taken this responsibility and take care of the children. But as a director, I was really happy that this happened because that way I was able to show exactly what happened back then. People didn't take responsibility.
0: Marusha begins working on her denunciation documentary in 2003 when she's 31. For an entire year, she tries to gather as many testimonies as possible, but none of the once children. Want to talk, especially not the girls.
1: Actually, the title of my documentary film was Children of the Commune because it was my intention to interview children that I knew from back then about their childhood. I wasn't planning on interviewing my mother or, or that the story would be about me and what I experienced. But then I discovered that um, a lot of children said, well, I would really want you to make this film, but I don't want to say anything. I don't want to be in your film. And when I asked why, they said, well, my life has finally become normal again. I'm a normal person now. I'm not somebody from a strange cult, uh, dressed in strange clothes. But now I'm a normal person, I fit in society, and I don't want anybody to know about my past. So I didn't have anybody really to interview apart from one person. So it was actually the only thing I could do was turn the camera to myself and and go for the biggest conflict that there was, which was um, my mother and the reason she took me into this commune and took me out again and all the things that happened.
0: I ask Marusha what she thinks now, 15 years after her documentary, about everything that happened, how she managed to deal with her childhood, the choices that were imposed on her, and the awareness which was put in her face by direct conflict with the adults. Can she forgive them?
1: I understand very much people wanting to go and uh, find out things ...in their own life, maybe do spiritual things, uh, travel to the East, uh, visit gurus. It wouldn't be my choice, but I understand people wanting this. I just don't think they should not have taken their children. Because children want to be in a secure uh, surrounding. They want to know where the boundaries are, and there were no boundaries. And I think many children grew up very scared... And I know a lot of them later got married very young and had a family, which I think is a reaction to the the loose childhood that they had. You ask if I can forgive them, and I certainly uh, can. I think looking at them, looking back at everything with anger doesn't solve anything. I understand how their life went and what they were searching for. They had the opportunity and they just didn't think it completely through. They sort of forgot about the children a little bit. And I don't really blame them. I think many people who were parents back then, by now they realize that they should have taken a little more responsibility and that they should have been there for their children. But I don't think there is anything, I don't think not forgiving people can help anybody, I think it's always good to forgive and um, just to to look at what happened with a softer heart.
0: It seems like a paradox that those who were looking for a path towards awareness outside society's rules and prescriptions ended up surrendering completely to that same awareness, keeping themselves from seeing what was happening inserting themselves into a microcosm made up of as many rules as the rest of the world, where the loss of control and responsibility was only the upteenth demonstration of the total acceptance of the continuous paradoxes which Osho asked them to abandon themselves to, in order to oppose the logic of the mind. Nowadays, Marusha teaches Dutch to refugees. Does it remind you of anything? This episode of Soli is dedicated to Marusha, Tim, Venu, Satish, Camila, Deacon, Patty, and all of those children Marusha wanted to interview and couldn't. To all those who spoke to me, and those who didn't want to. To the survivors, and those who didn't make it. To those who are still finding to find their place in the world to those who have dealt with the trauma, to those who remember this as the only possible childhood, and to those who never stopped being sannyazins. And to Tamesh, that one friend who confides to Marusha that after years away from his parents, when he finally found the courage to tell the commune supervisor that the reason of his deep sadness is enclosed in the sentence all the children of the world know, that is, I miss my mom, he heard her reply, why don't you choose a new one? Soli is dedicated to them and to all childhoods. This is Roberta Lippi, and I look forward to having you back for the next episode of Soli, here on storielibere.fm. The international version of Soli has been translated by Eduardo Rialti. The international voice of Roberta Lippi is Cecilia Gragnani. Story Libre Production by Gianandrea Cerone and Rossana De Michele. Editorial Supervisor Guido Guenci and Chiara Tagliaferri. Post and sound design era zero.